Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You realize your life has changed when you're standing in the tuxedo on this huge, massive red carpet of the Academy Awards and you're being interviewed by Joan Rivers. Things have changed in your life by yeah, then. You, yeah, you know of I mean? course. His resume is spectacular with 137 actor credits uh, on IMDb and titles like Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Yes, He Was the Silver Surfer, Adaptation and tons of great TV series. Today's guest is the incredible actor and contortionist Doug Jones. But before diving into my talk with him, me being Christopher Triumph from Sweden, let me tell you about one of my favorite Swedish brands now conquering the world, Uniforms for the Dedicated. It's a menswear brand that does casual tailoring with fabrics based on recycled cashmere. Recycling is always great, and especially when it looks this good. So go to www.uniformsforthededicated.com to check out their fantastic clothes. And they have a sale right now. So what are you waiting for? Aha, for me to repeat the web address. Okay, I'll do that. Hold on. Are you ready? Here it comes. www.uniformsforthededicated.com uniformsforthededicated.com uniforms for the dedicated it's in one word thank you uniforms for the dedicated when you google today's guest one of the first hits is a page with the title Doug Jones might be one of your favorite actors that you've never heard of and it's probably true at least for some of you you see Mr. Jones he often wears tons of masks and makeup when working but you you have probably seen him in something he's been in loads of TV series and movies and he's worked with movie director Guillermo del Toro in Pan's Labyrinth one of the coolest movies ever made I think I have to see it again and then they've done at least five or six other movies and TV series together in short Doug Jones is a character actor whose specialty is being physical and he is incredibly tall and skinny I met him I know he is a midwisner youngest of four children he was born in 1960 and even though he took up mime pretty early on he almost became a banker how did that happen well you're about to find out roll the tape please I was thinking about you, and also now that I see you, I mean, you don't seem to age, really. Oh, bless you. <laughs> I feel very old today because I, I only got three hours of sleep last night. I, that's why another reason I started later than I wanted to on the drive. I'm thinking, oh, it should be fine where it's after rush hour. I'm like, oh, God, the trip. <laughs> 
on the freeway. So I'm like, yeah. oh, this is going to go poorly. But um, I was reading a script until 3 a.m. last night. So okay. Yeah. And how are you other than that? I am good. I'm, I'm extremely busy right now, but good. Yeah, happy and good. What keeps you busy? What can you tell me about? Um, are we? Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm focusing. Let's see. Right. Well, because let's see. I just finished up my final, our final season of Falling Skies, the TNT network show here in the states, and it's it's the fifth season of the show. My third. I joined this show in season three, four, and five. So we just finished that up in Vancouver, and then right after that was finished, I flew to Toronto right away to do two episodes of The Strain for Guillermo del Toro and um, season two. You guys yeah. don't seem to get enough of each other. No, we don't. No. I, I love the man dearly. He's the, he's the director who changed my life. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I have, I've got Guillermo stories for days. But, yeah, he, I owe him a lot. And um, after The Strain, then I came back to L.A., did some pilot seasoning, you know, like uh, auditioning for, for various pilots, got very close to one for the ABC network, didn't get it. But what I did get was uh, a guest role on Arrow on the CW channel here. Arrow, of course, being in the DC Comics universe. And they added me to the show as a villain, a supervillain named Deathbolt. Okay. And Deathbolt was in the um, DC comic books in the 80s. And so introducing Deathbolt on Arrow, and now I'm going back to Vancouver in two days from now to film an episode of The Flash as the same character. So I'm crossing over to the other show, also in the DC Comics universe. So, As a, someone who's not uh, from here, and this perhaps is super obvious to anyone living in the US, but mm -hmm. how come nothing really shoots here anymore? Oh, yeah, uh, right. It, it, that is kind of... when I, you know, I started back in the 80s. I moved out here in, to Los Angeles in 1985, And that's when, if you wanted to be an actor, you had to go to New York or L.A., and that was it. Now Los Angeles has become a very difficult place to film, an expensive place to film. Because um, I'm assuming, you know, of course, I don't work on the, on the producing end of things, but what I hear, the scuttlebutt being, is uh, that it, getting permits and is expensive in, in Los Angeles County, and also your taxes of course you have other states like georgia louisiana new mexico north carolina that offers tax incentives to lure productions to there canada has even better tax incentives and the uh, the uh, the dollar the exchange rate for the dollar is really strong right now for us for america so productions going to canada they get more bang for their buck up there apparently so it's kind of unfortunate though because i have lots to be a, a, a young actor starting out in los angeles now it's more difficult because those smaller roles that you know get your foot in the door to be a, a guest on a tv show with two lines those roles are given to locals in georgia north carolina louisiana canada. vancouver yeah. toronto mm. right so So I don't know how a young actor starts in L.A. anymore. Uh, the, the major casting is still done here where, for instance, during the two weeks that I was available for pilot season here, I auditioned for five different projects, all five of them shot in Canada. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so now I was up for bigger roles, so I was in the right place to, to do those auditions. But if you want to be a smaller character actor, you know, guesting on those shows, you'd have to be a local in, up in Canada. That's mm -hmm. where they look first for those. If we go back from the beginning, mm. you moved here in 85. I did. But yes. we, we packed up the, the, our Ford Thunderbird, Mrs. Lori and I. We'd been only married for 11 months at the time. And uh, 
drove to California. I guess our reason for coming out here was so that I could be closer to the show business. But our excuse to move at the time was that I, I got myself a job at a bank. I had flown out here previously to interview for a bank job as a management trainee for the operations department. And what that meant was I would go through a nine-month training program, after which I would be handed a wad of keys and given a branch of the bank of my own somewhere in the Los Angeles area, supervising a line of tellers and being responsible for all the cash in the vault. That's what I was training for. Okay. Now, when you're a creative person, that is a nightmare. <laughs> that whole scenario, I just said, it's a square peg in a round hole. It doesn't fit. But so, it would give you good money, I, I assume. But right? At the time, it was, it was the biggest salary I'd ever gotten. Mm -hmm. You know, looking back on it now, it was pittance. You know, but it was... Uh, it was, it was like, oh, well, this is a, a salaried position. It's like, oh, I'm, I get to wear a tie and hold a briefcase and look like an adult. Yes. I was, you know, I was 24 at the time, so it was very exciting for me to move to L.A. and wear a suit and tie, you know. But when I got here and realized that, oh, I, I, what have I done? I interview well, so the, I, I totally fooled the bank into thinking I could be a banker. And then eight months into my nine-month training program, they said, you suck. And so they fired me. Okay. Ta-da! All right. <laughs> yeah. So you can't manage a bank. I can't. Apparently, I cannot manage a bank. No. But thank heaven that they spotted that because I wouldn't have left on my own volition because I, I, I was I'm I can t I tend to be a chicken and like scared of of change. So it's like okay, I have a gig. It's paying. I should stick with it. And the bank said, no, you don't have a gig. You're done. And that's what pushed me to like. Well, now we're in Los Angeles. We made the move. I'm fired. I'm on unemployment checks for about six months. So we got six months for me to figure something out. And uh, Mrs. Laurie at the time was working at an advertising agency as a receptionist. So making a, a minor salary there. So we took the two of us together. Okay, let's try real hard. And I'll be an actor now. Yeah, okay, let's try that now. So I uh, ended up looking through. We didn't have the internet back then. So we had a once-a-week magazine that came out called Dramalogue Magazine. Now it's called Backstage. And they have, of course, they have the website where you, you do everything online now. But back then you waited for your every Thursday that came out on the newsstand. So I'd go to my 7-Eleven across the street. I would buy my Dramalogue Magazine. I would rifle through it. And it had all the casting notices in there for student films and industrial videos and extra background work, uh, anything that... You, and they also had in their advertisements for photographers and acting classes, and anything an actor needed was in that magazine. So it was kind of like the weekly Bible, you know. So I submitted myself for lots of USC and UCLA student films because they had really good cinema schools there, film schools. And they would, their students and their grad students would be making short films. So those were good to get in. If, as a young actor with no on-camera experience, it was good for me to get into those films and be directed by somebody. And that, that became my early demo reel was for, off of student films I did for free. So At some point, you got yourself an agent. An agent, I did. Yeah. Because in that Dramalogue magazine, I was looking for acting classes and I... TV commercials seemed to be the best, the, the smartest way to go at the time to get started to get your union membership into the Screen Actors Guild. Now it's SAG-AFTRA. SAG and AFTRA joined, of course, in recent years. But back then, getting into SAG, the Screen Actors Guild was... Oh, 
Why, why was that important? Oh, because um, all of the TV shows and films that you see in theaters and on your television set were union jobs. It, without union membership as an actor, you couldn't get into those uh, okay. roles. Unless somebody hired you in, as, in a speaking role or a, a, you know, what they call a principal character, and you were Taft-Hartley, which means that's, a, that's an act that was created by the law to say that people can join the union if they're needed in that role, you can do some paperwork with the union to say, he's the only one right for this part. She's the only one right for this part. And then they can, uh, can get you into the union that way. That makes you union eligible. So I got my Taft-Hartley through a TV commercial, but my getting that TV commercial agent was crucial to get into those because without the agent, I wouldn't have known where to go to audition and I wouldn't have been invited to audition. So I looked through the uh, Dramalogue magazine and I saw TV commercial acting workshops. Now, I had a bachelor's degree from university back in Indiana, Ball State University, in radio and TV broadcasting as my major, and my minor field of study was theater. But I didn't have really any on-camera acting experience. I had on-camera presenting, like news and, and talk show experience from college, but I didn't have any how to act for the camera. I was acting for the stage. I was big and broad, and I had, a, I had mime experience. I had been in a mime troupe in college called Mime Over Matter. A little play on words there. Get it? Uh, no, we have an expression yet. here called Mind Over Matter. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, mm. and this, so this... <laughs> All right. So this, uh, <laughs> this troupe was called Mime Over Matter. Mm. I like that. Yeah, but that's where I got my physical training was like, oh, you can tell a story without words. Yeah. I get it. And that translates into any language. And we do communicate with our bodies very much so. When yeah. we're talking, our hand gestures, our facial expressions, our body position, our body language that we, that we give off tells so much of the story, at least half of the story, if not more. So I learned that from being a mime. So bringing that skill, and also my legs can go behind my head, so I'm, I'm officially a contortionist. It's my one-party trick, that I, that I'm not really, I don't have a circus act, but I can, I can put my legs behind my head. So on my still, still. Mm -hmm, still yeah. to this day. Yeah. So on my resume, it, mime and contortionist, those were very strong special skills to have in the TV commercial world because that, that makes you very interesting visually. And there are breakdowns that come out for commercials where, oh, you know, we, we are looking for a clown or a mime or someone who does physical comedy or can wear a costume and make it work. So that's when my agent would be like, ah, we'll send in Doug for this with the mime and the contortion experience. He'll be great for this. Now, how I got that first agent, right, was looking for the TV commercial acting workshop. I went through the Dramalogue magazine and was looking at different ads for different acting classes. And um, being a cheap, very poor, out-of-work young person, I was looking, okay, are, will any of these classes let me audit one time for free without having to pay for it so I can pick my class without paying for it? Five of them said, sure, come for one night for free. So I called ahead and found them, and I went and visited all of five of these classes, and I ended up going back to the one where the teacher and I clicked and connected. When finding an acting coach is like finding a date. You know, you really need to connect and understand each other, and hey, are we going to have a relationship or not? Mm. <laughs> That's what it's like with an acting coach, because yeah. you have to trust them. You're putting your, a piece of your soul into the hands of your instructor when you're an actor. Same thing you do when you're with an actor and director, when you've got a job. You give a piece of your soul to each other, and you do have a, a very tight, intimate relationship. You know, So finding an acting coach is, is difficult. So this, this, this man, Philip Carr, 
God rest his soul. He's, uh, he's passed on now because this was like over 30 years ago now. No, it was exactly 30 years ago. I moved here to Los Angeles 30 years ago this month. Oh, my goodness. Happy anniversary to yeah. me, right? Hey. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, um, so I visit his acting class, loved it, went back for a second time and started paying for his class. It's an ongoing TV commercial workshop. Of course, it's no longer there. But at the end of my second class, he said to me, do you have an agent yet? And I said, what exactly is an agent? And he said, oh, okay, I understand. So he gave me his card and he said, call me at the office. And his card was Philip Carr, vice president of the West Coast office of Wilhelmina. And Wilhelmina being a very big modeling agency name in New York, their West Coast Los Angeles office was also huge in modeling. And they had a huge TV commercial department was in in the top 10 in the city. They handled mostly pretty people that were models. And here I was this goofy character actor. And he just really loved me and wanted to... They didn't have anybody like me at the agency. So he thought he wanted to try out this goofy, tall character actor. And I started going on auditions right away. They took me in. And he became, they, Wilhelmina became my first agency. So I started auditioning at least once or twice a week. And uh, then I finally booked my first commercial the same week that my unemployment checks ran out. So it took about six months, right? And uh, talk about great timing. And, you know, that's like, thank you, God, for that, right? I um, booked this first commercial. I was a dancing mummy for Southwest Airlines. And um, so I was wrapped from head to toe in dirty bandages. And I did some dancing coming out of a sarcophagus. Like I was waking up for the first time in 300 years to go off. Finally, I could take a vacation because Southwest Airlines fares had dropped low enough. They had their fun fares in the okay. summertime. That was the concept. And mummies generally don't have that much cash, or, right? Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. So he, yeah, right. So he could finally afford to fly. That's I guess was the idea. Fantastic. Yeah. Sure, sure. Mm. Yeah. So that was my first. That's and that was my Taft Hartley and and my uh, my eligibility to join the union. Then, but that's how I did. It seems like you, if we go even further back, that because you were born. What, like it, it, 55 years ago? Yes, born in 1960. Right. And grew up in Indianapolis. Indianapolis, Indiana. Right. That's a good Midwestern, you know, heart of the country right there. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of child were you? Oh, I'm the youngest of four boys. And back in the 1960, having four kids was kind of a standard thing. You know, <laughs> we were a bit above average, I think. It was a big family, but... But, um, yeah, I, being the youngest of four boys, all three of my older brothers, very athletic, very um, one-star basketball player and two-star track runners. They all went to university on full-ride athletic scholarships. Then comes Dougie. Now, I'm taller than every kid in my class. I'm skinnier than every kid in my class. I don't feel athletic at all. I don't care. But my dad was very also a jock when he was younger, and he was very, uh, very go-gettery and... So he really wanted me to play basketball. Everybody wanted me to play basketball because I'm so tall. And in Indiana, it was a very big basketball state. Everyone played basketball in Indiana. And I'm like, oh, it involves a ball. You have to bounce it and you have to shoot it at things and you have to pass it to each other. So you have to catch, throw, bounce. Oh, this is too much work. So (laughs) I decided I would follow the footsteps of my other two brothers that were track runners. I thought, I can run. Anybody can run. If you have two legs, you can run if you've been blessed with legs that work. So I, and being a tall, skinny guy, I was built for distance running. Oh, God. 
You know, distance running, it's long. It's really, you have, it takes longer. It does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I ran track and cross country in high school for all four years of high school. Were you good? Oh, no, I sucked. But you know what, what my dad had right was he wanted me to experience being on a team, having the camaraderie of other athletes and working on a common goal together. I, I understand the, the, the benefit of sports and the benefit of teamwork and and the friendships that grow from it and the trust that grows from it and and how how I have my function on the team and someone else has their function and their strengths on the team. We all have our strengths and weaknesses and let's play our strengths to the best advantage and cover each other's weaknesses with our strengths. That's what you learn from teamwork and from athletics, I think. So I got that lesson down fine, but I didn't really have a real competitive attitude. I didn't really care about decimating the competition. I didn't care. I ran my own race and I kind of... I, I got by. Right? You didn't have what we in Sweden call a winner's head. Yeah, I didn't have a winner's head. I didn't care. If it was life or death situation, if it, if someone's survival, my own, or someone else's survival depended on my, me running, I would have been a much better runner. But as it was, it's like at the end of the day, I would have gone home with a medal or a ribbon. And yeah. that's like, I didn't really care about, yeah, it's, it's fine. I'm fine without them. <laughs> you know what I mean? What did your parents do for a living? Well, father. Well, yeah, I, I would assume that your mother was a stay-at-home mom. With four kids in the 60s, yes, yeah. she was a stay-at-home mom. And I did benefit from having a stay-at-home mom. She was, she was a, a lovely, she just passed away two years ago at the age of 84. And she had a really ripe, beautiful, long life. My dad had a shorter life. He, he passed away at age 50 because, you ask what he did, he did everything. He was a type A personality, very driven, very stressed out all the time. Typical of a man in the 60s as well, with a horrible diet, typical of a man in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he was very self-made. He was an entrepreneur. He started, he had a, a PhD in education. So he had a consulting firm that he started himself. He would go to a business and help them train their employees. So he serviced businesses and industries on their employee training. So he would go to a bank and develop a program to teach their tellers how to do a certain thing. For instance, when, when credit cards became a big thing, my dad was at, it was at, the, at the, the beginning of, of the big use of credit cards. MasterCard and Visa used to be uh, MasterCharge and Bank AmeriCard back in the day. My dad contacted those companies and developed a training program for them that he could take to banks and retailers to train employees on how to suggest the use of a credit card, how to get the credit cards to become a more common usage thing. They bought his training program, and he was then traveled the country doing seminars with big business and, and industry. So he was very, very successful. And with that success also came a social responsibility. So he got involved in politics. And he also, got, so in the state of Indiana, he never went national, but he, in the state of Indiana, he was kind of a big do. He was in our House of Representatives in our state legislature. And he served in the House of Representatives for about... I think I'm going to say 12 years. He died while in office. So And so he did that. And now in Indiana, as a state representative, it's only a few months out of the year. It's not a full-time job. You get a very part-time salary for a very part-time job. They're only in session about three or four months out of the year. The rest of the time, you have to have something to do. So as a self-employed, self-made man, that was perfect for him. 
He also was a very devout Christian, as my mother was too, and started a church in our house. Okay. Right. So oh. I grew, I, when I was born, we, I was born into the Methodist church. So we, we attended a church with a pastor, like, like the very common church scenario in the Midwest would be. At some point, my, my parents became a little bit dissatisfied with the Methodist church and decided uh, to let's start a church in our house and with a bit more free flowing this is now this is in the the early 70s they did this and this is when there was a movement called the charismatic movement the pentecostals the holy rollers the yeah get your hands in the air and have some church and the methodists were not that at all it was very conservative and very like you know (laughs) but they wanted to be like let's just do away with tradition come on so with that comes some crazy people, which was great. As a kid, I was, I was you know, 12 years old, and, uh, and I was loving this. It was great for me to have this very different kind of church experience. But it grew. It was very popular. Um, my dad was the leader of this church, but he shared the leadership with a couple of other gentlemen. So they would take turns in the pulpit. So every Sunday, someone different would be speaking, would be preaching. So this grew from our house to a meeting room at a, at a hotel, to a gymnasium at a high school. So it got huge. And my dad also died while, while that was at the height of its, of its growth. So it was, uh, so he, he had a lot of, a lot of pots stirring at once. He was, yeah. he was a leader, a born leader with that came an awful lot of stress. And with that came a, a temper that might flare at home. You know, he was a typical dad of the sixties and seventies, you know, and my mom was a, a homemaker who was a very supportive wife to, the, to a man who was just strong and, and spread so thin. She really picked up the slack for him, and she would help him organize his thoughts and his life in a way. And she was built for that. She, uh, she was groomed for that. when She was, she was born in 1929, and that's women were back then were, were very much groomed to be that function. But she didn't, she didn't ever begrudge it. She loved, loved being a wife and a mother and being a homemaker. In fact, after my dad passed away in 1979 at the age of 50, I was just about to turn 19. I was, I was still 18. So I was, it was, this was way too premature. My dad's yeah. death was, was a surprise and a shock. Heart attack that took him in an instant. So that was, that was the end of that. My mom had trouble redefining herself at that time. She's now single. She now has three, four grown boys. I was the youngest at 18, so what does she do with herself now? So finding my mother on top of her covers, fully dressed with the lights on every night, was difficult to watch. She didn't know how to put herself to bed, mm-hmm. you know, because she, she couldn't close her day feeling satisfied, you know, without having a sense of purpose. She did start working full-time. They created a job with all of my dad's political connections in, in Indianapolis, Indiana, she got a job with the Indianapolis City. They created a new department that she headed. It was the Indianapolis Permit Department, the Building Permit Department that she was spearheading. So, and she did a great job. Very organized woman. She, oh my goodness. But she still, when she was proposed to by an English gentleman, she met at a convention. It was instant love and he was wealthy and he swooped her out of Indianapolis and took her to England and she started an entire new fairy tale life. Okay. And this was in 1983. All right. Yeah. And so then, you know, she uh, just and thrived and they were married. He was older than her by about 12 years. So in 2002, he passed away and now she's living in England as a widow for the second time. I think the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life is watch my mother at two funerals with, mm-hmm. with, with husbands who had passed away. I didn't enjoy that at all. Of course, Not yeah. at all. 
So <laughs> then she moves back to Indianapolis, Indiana, a couple years after, after my stepdad fought, uh, uh, passed away. And I said to her, if you ever marry again, it has to be a younger boy toy who will take care of you in your old age, or I'm not having it. <laughs> and she said, oh, honey, I'll never get married again. Months later, not a year, months later, she's married again because <laughs> she can't help herself. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, to a younger a younger man. She did not take my advice. No? Uh, she married an older gentleman who had had, had a six-way, five-way bypass recently. So I'm thinking, oh, dear, this isn't going to go well. He outlived her. He's still alive oh, okay. to this day. Uh, okay. He's 90 now. And my mother passed away uh, almost two years ago. But the first of her funerals, I mean, you were way too young to lose a parent. Yes. How was that for you? Devastating. It was right before finals week of my freshman year at university. Just so the timing was ridiculous. Uh, I I have to pass final exams and I just heard that my father passed away. Surprise, surprise. So I had to go home to uh, you know, Ball State University. It was about an hour from Indianapolis. So I made the drive home, did the funeral, saw the family for a week. When I got back, I was able to make all my final exams in time. And my professors were very forgiving and were very helpful in getting me through those exams. I ended up passing with flying colors my freshman year. So it worked out okay. But, but you know, when, you're, when you reach your senior year of high school, All you want to do is get out of the house. Your parents are so stupid. You want to get away from them. You want to grow up. I'm a man now. I can do this on my own, stupid parents. You know, mm. that, that's your feeling. Of course. And uh, I think we all go through that. And then you get away from home for the first time. I, when I was in, co in college, I lived in the dorm, and I was away from home. And uh, the, the longer I had on my own with my roommate and my new batch of friends and all, it's like, huh, my parents weren't so stupid after all, were they? Huh. They're okay. They're okay people. They're okay. Yeah. Mm. So my dad and I, especially, you know, uh, I think mothers and daughters, you know, have, have a certain love-hate relationship. And I think fathers and sons also have a same kind of love-hate. You know, they grade on each other. I think it's because fathers want their sons to be like them. They want to follow it. They want them to follow in their footsteps. Mothers want to do the same thing with their daughters, I think. So my dad and I, I was the, I was the last of four boys. And my brother, Richie, who's just older than me, he, we're the youngest too. He's a psychologist now. And he came up with this theory about my dad. He said, he said, you know, dad had enough parenting in him for two. We were the last two. And so we kind of, we got less of him. So when he passed away, there was a little bit of, if I had any regrets, it was that I didn't have more time with him and more quality time with him. And now that I was 18 and finally coming around to where I, I was starting to like him more, you know, and wanted to get to know him more. And I wanted him to know me more as Dougie and all the, all of the gifts and talents that I do have that are not athletic. Right. Yeah. He related to other men on an athletic level. He had been in the military and he's an entrepreneur now. And a, he was very competitive and go getter and he had to win everything. And my brothers, my two oldest brothers had that fighter instinct in them. And the, uh, the younger two, my brother Richie and I, not so much. We didn't care so much because we didn't have as much hands-on time with him. So if anything, I missed out on a little bit of father-son childhood time that I would love to have developed after it being 18. You know, uh, still to this day, uh, I haven't had a whole lot of older men in my life that have, have had fatherly advice for me. There's one, one man, uh, uh, Bob Reith, who has been a, a father figure to me for about 25 years now. I cherish that, uh, but I, you, you're never ready to lose a parent, no matter what. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You mentioned God on various occasions. Yes. <laughs> Is God a part of your life? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, of course. When, when you're when you're at a dinner party, and I, here I'm sitting in in a home you're living in in Los Angeles for now. I guess we're never supposed to discuss politics or religion, but you asked, so so I'll tell you. Yes, I've been a, a Christian all my life. So if that's popular or not, I uh, in Hollywood it certainly isn't popular to say that out loud. But but I just am who I am. I believe what I believe, and I, I don't try to I don't try to hide it, nor do I try to sell it. I'm not overt. And I'm not covert about it. I just am. I, I, I just try to be honest with myself. It's a constant sort of. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But He's, and it's not. It's not a label that I. That I. It's not a label as much as it is a relationship for me. I very much believe in God and and uh, the Holy Trinity and and Jesus Christ and all that He did for the, you know why we Christians believe what we believe. And I'll tell you what. What really cinched it up for me was just less than two years ago when my mother was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. It was kind of a surprise. Uh, we didn't, she was 84 years old and uh, was put into the hospital having turned yellow and turned jaundice. Diagnosis came back, well, you have a tumor on your, on your liver that is inoperable. It's gone too far. It's metastasized. It's all over your body now. You have less than three months to live. Well, upon hearing that news, my mother was the only one in the room that didn't cry. We were all going, oh, God, it's just devastating news. It's like, you know, she's in her 80s and you start preparing yourself when your parents get older anyway. They're not going to be around forever. We get that. But, you know, still, oh, my goodness, here it's happening now. And so very emotional on my part. My mother was completely and totally calm and at peace with this news. And her, her response was, okay. And they offered her, like, you know, we can do drastic measures. We can do the chemotherapy, the radiation, if you want to, you know, that'll buy you maybe not quite a year, a few months. It may not be quality months. And my mother said, don't even talk to me about that. I don't, I don't want to, if I have a, three months left, I want them to be as healthy and good as possible without chemicals running through my body. Couldn't blame her for that. And later, she's holding my hand. I had a private moment with her because, you know, she had to have a private moment with all four of us boys. And my private moment with her was her saying to me, oh gosh, you, of course you have to be Barbara Walters and get me crying. She said to me, she saw that I was welling up and I was in this condition uh, with tears in my eyes. And she held my hand and she said, you know, I've had a very good life. Don't feel bad for this moment, she said, because I have lived a life that other people would pay money for. And she, she had, she had, you know, she had three marriages and no divorces. She had four boys, no jail time. Mm -hmm. She did, she did great, <laughs> you know. And then she went, to, she went on to tell me that she was looking very forward to what was ahead. 
she was looking very forward to finally meeting this Jesus that she'd been singing about in church for 84 years. Mm. Oh, that was a beautiful thing. And she couldn't wait to see my dad again. She couldn't wait to meet, see my other stepdad again. And her parents and her brothers and sisters who had all gone on before her. It reminded me, this is why I believe what I believe. To see this woman ending her life with the full confidence that it was a finish line of glory and triumph. Like mm. she's coming to the finish line going, yeah, I did it. We're done here and I got to get to move on to the next thing. Yes. That's exactly the grace and the, the dignity I would like to leave this world with. But for your parents, obviously, I mean, the church thing, I mean, the community part of... Absolutely. That was a big part. It's a big thing. Oh, sure, yeah. Is it for you as well? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. To to this day? Yeah. That's why I think uh, a lot of people who attend a church, they'll call the people at that church their church family, because there is very much a sense of family that comes with that. And um, when, when one person in the congregation is sick or in need, everyone else will, you know, stop by to, for visits or bring food or, or help drive them somewhere if they need that. A very much a sense of tight community. Absolutely. So you have a church here. We do. As well. All right. Yeah. Growing up, how did you find sort of the, because you were telling me about the athletic, mm-hmm. but the arts. The arts, right? How did that, how did, right, how did that get developed, right? Well, believe it or not, even though, even though my, my father was very athletic and wanted to push me in, in the, that direction, and both my parents, in, when you live, grow up in Indiana and you tell your parents, I want to be an actor, they're like, oh, honey, that's cute. Now, what do you really want to do, <laughs> right? And uh, when, I, when I went to university and wanted to major in theater, the reason I minored in theater and majored in, in broadcasting was because broadcasting is more of a job. That you, they could see opportunities for employment there, whereas theater, eh, nobody really works in that profession. And responsible parents from the Midwest probably should tell their kids that. But at the same time, you have a dream, and if you have God-given talent, you know, uh, if you have a passion for something, you should probably... Do, test that out and see if see if it'll go anywhere so my dad even though he was was very driven and very business-like and very athletic he also had a a, an entertainment streak in him he loved old musicals and comedies and myself when i would come home from school being the weird kid at school all day the goofy class clown or whatever i found solace and friendship in my tv screen i would watch all the sitcoms, um, and, and it was the goofy characters that I really connected with, like Gilligan from Gilligan's Island, or Gomer from Gomer Pyle, Barney Fife from the Andy Griffith show, played by Don Knotts, loved him, loved him. Anything Jerry Lewis did, loved him. Danny Kaye, loved him. It was the goofy characters, the character actors, the skinny guys, the ones that, that did the physical comedy, I really related to because they were most like me. And uh, so I thought, well, if that skinny, goofy guy has a purpose and can be entertaining people and making them feel something and better themselves because they're watching this movie, I want to do that. So that, I think that was the early inspiration for me to want to be an actor. If we skip to where it became a job for you mm-hmm. after that first commercial and so forth, yeah. what did your life look after that? After that first commercial, I started getting way more auditions because now I was in the union as a Screen Actors Guild actor. So more casting directors were willing to see me then. And I started booking more commercials like boom, 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 like right away. So within that first, my, within my first three months, six months of of, of Booking that first job, I I booked another three or four commercials right away. And my fourth booking was 
the Mac Tonight campaign for McDonald's. Now, they ran worldwide eventually, but it was a, a crescent moon head character with sunglasses on that sang at a piano, floating on a cloud, and singing about McDonald's. Yeah, it's Mac Tonight. Hey. So it was a very popular campaign here in the States. So popular that that business after 4 p.m. grew. And that, that was their angle. That They created this character for a nighttime they had lunch and breakfast covered with like business, but they really wanted to beef up their their dinner time and beyond hours and, and profits. So anyway, this commercial campaign was very successful at doing that. So they kept me around. I ended up doing 27 commercials as that character for about three years. So that is what really cinched up the deal. Like, okay, I'm making money and I can walk into any room and say, you know, I'm the guy that plays that Mac Tonight guy on TV. And people would go, oh, that's you? I love those commercials. Ah! That was a commercial campaign that marked me as tall, skinny, goofy guy who moves well, wears a lot of stuff on his face, and does not complain about it. Mm. And that was the big one. The creature effects makeup people who created that moonhead would borrow people from other creature shops to work on our commercial campaign. And we did, like, you know, with 27 commercial shoots over, over a three-year period, we borrowed a lot of creature effects people from a lot of different shops, like Stan Winston's shops and Rick Baker's shop and Greg Canham, all these Oscar-winning you know, makeup artists who had their own creature effects makeup house. We had um, employees there that we would borrow for our commercial campaign. They would go back to those creature shops after working with me, and they might see that they have a movie or a TV show that needs an alien who's tall and skinny with a long neck. Oh, I just worked with this guy, Doug Jones, on this commercial, and he was tall and skinny, moved well, wore a lot of crap on his face, and didn't complain about it. So they would refer me for that job. Yeah. Right. So that's how that started for me, was the referral process. I didn't go through the regular casting channels. I didn't audition for everything with a casting director. I would often get a referral from the people who made the creature costumes, and then the director and the producers would be like, well, if you, if you trust him, we don't know any better. So, we'll, yeah, we'll go with your recommendation. So I got a lot of jobs just from word of mouth. I mean, that has been... It the became most, my thing. Exactly. Yeah, which, yeah. I did, which I never expected and I never pursued. No. I came out here to be a sitcom star. I, you remember the, all those things that inspired me as a kid? Yeah. I wanted to be Don Knotts. I wanted to be Jerry Lewis, Danny Kaye. I thought I'm built for to be the goofy neighbor on a sitcom to walk in the room and do an armpit fart and say something funny. And here I am now wearing rubber on my face going, you know? exactly, yeah. <laughs> which I did not expect. I didn't know that was a job option. And it uh, turns out there's a lot of, a lot of uh, work that, in that yeah. field. Did you audition for the Seinfeld uh, part of... Uh, Kramer. Yeah, exactly. No, I did not. But I, I did. I played a Kramer ripoff, I guess, starred on an episode of a, a sitcom called Unhappily Ever After. It was on the WB channel here in the States, which is now gone. It's now, I think, it, it combined with another network to become the CW. And Unhappily Ever After was kind of like a... A married with children, but more crass and 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 more and a little dirtier, if you can imagine that. So anyway, in, in this one episode, the family was was background actors for, for for an episode of what would be Seinfeld, but they couldn't call it that, so it was very Seinfeld-ish. So it was a TV show within a TV show, yeah. and in that, I played the Kramer character, but they called me Boomer. Okay, and that means I, I walked into the diner, bounced off the cash register, fell over a table, did like a a very comedic physical entrance to. 
that was very Kramer-esque. So I loved channeling him for, for one episode of a, of a sitcom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my research also said that you were inspired by your goldfish in one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When I, when I booked the role of Abe Sapien, the, the blue fish boy in the Hellboy movies, what helped me find the physicality of Abe were watching my goldfish in my home office because their their heads are very curious and and you know they, they they their heads look around like this but then their body flows very fluidly behind them with their their fins just going through the water like oh you know very calming curious head with calming limbs so i thought huh i love watching my goldfish they have a calming effect on me that's why they're in my home office so I want Abe Sapien to be that same calming effect on the BPRD Hellboy team. So that's what I what I offered it. And I was at a costume fitting at the Creature Effects shop, Spectral Motion. I went did several several fittings and, and makeup tests before because it was such an extensive makeup with twelve different prosthetic pieces and and paints and everything. So they really had to do a lot of testing on me. One of the early tests, they had the head and hands made, and so I just went in to put those on. I wasn't wearing a shirt, just you know, just me in front of a big mirror in the back shop of this creature effects house with these webbed finger fin-like hands and this head with gills on the on the sides and these big fish eyes. And I was looking at myself in the mirror and I thought, huh, my goldfish at home would probably do this kind of a head thing and that kind of an arm thing. And so I'm just kind of doing this in the mirror. And across the room, I hear, I hear that. Keep that. I like that. It was Guillermo del Toro, our director, yeah. saying that he liked what he saw, and we never discussed it ever again. That was that was all the physical discussion that we had on <laughs> directing me as Abe Sapien. He liked what he saw, and that's what I did for two movies. Yeah. Okay. And rumored, yes, a third one. It's rumored. Only uh, I'm afraid it's only rumored right now. It's on IMDb. If you look it up on the internet, it looks like it's happening. And but any fan can put anything up on IMDb. Apparently, okay. so it's wishful thinking is what's on there right now. I think that the door we, is not closed. It's not closed. We all want to do it. Ron Perlman, Selma Blair, I. We all want to return to it. Guillermo del Toro would love to direct a third one, but. He also has, he's one of those people who's stirring an awful lot of different pots right now, too. He's got so many, pro he has more projects on his calendar than he can do in his lifetime. Okay. He can't finish them all before he dies. So will Hellboy 3 be a priority? I don't know. I think he would love to finish up the, the trilogy and, and finish the storyline. But I think he also wants to do it with a proper budget. Because he, he scrimped and saved for Hellboy 1 and 2. He got, he got less of a budget than most superhero movies get. Would he like a bigger budget? Probably. And I'm not an expert on this. I'm not, I'm not the, the official spokesperson for Hellboy franchise. But when, when, there's, a, when there's a holdup in, in something like this, it's usually about money and it's usually at the studio level. So whatever they're working out, I hope they work out. This being your thing with the physicality and so forth, I mean, how do you stay in shape? Oh, right. Well, because I'm six three and a half, and I only weigh 140 pounds, that makes me a very tall, very skinny boy. And the older we get, the more we want to spread out and uh, gain yes, weight. You do that too. Well, I well I, you would. Have. I might, but basically, I, I listen to what my body wants. And if it's not asking for food, we don't eat. So I don't eat three times a day like most normal people. I don't have a man-sized appetite like where hunger drives my day. Not at all. I'm I eat to survive more than than I than I. I yeah, I'm, I'm food is. 
the finer po- po- dining is, is lost on me. I just, I, I eat, I eat for survival and, oh. uh, and I, uh, I don't deprive myself. I, when, when there's food around, if you put me in front of a buffet, the whole buffet is mine. But then, I, but then I'll be so full that I, I'm like a snake. Where it, when a snake slides over and eats a rat, it it goes to the corner and curls up and digests that rat for a couple of days. <laughs> That's kind of yeah. like how I do, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so lots of my eating habits are very erratic and bad. <laughs> but but I I'm very I jog when I can. I I, I do small lighter weights. I can't do big weights because I would bulk up, and I can't afford to do that because I get hired as the skinny guy and. The, the longer and the skinnier that I am, the more appealing I am to the creature effects people to put costuming on me. Because you can build out from a skinny person. You can build onto them without making them too bulky. So when I wear a crazy makeup, I, the goal is for me to not look like a guy in a suit. And so being the skinnier I am, the better that, that we can do that. And it's probably easier to make a skinny person bigger than it is to yes. make a bigger person skinny. Much easier, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't have to wear a corset. And, no. Yeah. But is there sort of a, I don't know what the proper term is, but is there a sorrow in that for you that that has become your thing? I mean, you haven't got to do, you know, perhaps the biggest hero parts or I, I can't really compare, but uh, yeah. Tom, you haven't booked the Tom Hanks jobs. Sort yeah, of. Uh, which is fine. It's all fine. Yeah, no, I... Um, I have reached a level of fame that I never thought possible for myself. You know, in fact, I was really enjoying being, I was off the celebrity radar for 20, almost 20 years. And I didn't really get known as a name out there until about, until Pan's Labyrinth came out. Even after the first Hellboy, I was a speck on the radar for a minute because people wanted to know who that blue fish guy was. And they would look me up on, now we had the internet, so they could look you up on IMDb and other things and say, oh, he was the guy, you know, he was also in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Hocus Pocus. Oh, I like those shows in that movie. Oh, yeah, okay. But then I faded away again for a minute. And then Pan's Labyrinth came out. And uh, that's what really turned the page for me where I was being referred to in the press as a movie star or as an actor instead of as a creature movement mime guy, contortionist, stunt person thing. They didn't really know what to call me for a long time. And Pan's Labyrinth was the movie that really marked me as an actor because it was an artistic, you know, masterpiece by Guillermo del Toro that ended up being at the Oscars with six nominations. Now, what, what, the reason that it was such a good thing for me is that I'm, I was the only American actor in Pan's Labyrinth. It was made in Spain with all Spanish actors. And being the only American actor in the film with English as a first language, I was the one who did all the interviews and all the press when the movie opened here in the States. Yeah, of course. So that gave me a, a really good opportunity to get to know the press and for them to get to know me. And so I was the go-to guy. So uh, between Guillermo del Toro and I, we did all the interviews and all the press for the movie. And then I went to the Oscars. I was in a New Line Cinema, wanted to make sure that I got to the Oscars to work the red carpet there. And so, you know, you, you, you realize your life has changed when you're standing in a, tu- in a tuxedo on this huge, massive red carpet of, of the Academy Awards, and you're being interviewed by Joan Rivers. Things have changed in your life by yeah, then. You, yeah, you know I mean? Of course. Yeah. Was that the first time for you at the Oscars? That was my first time. I haven't been back since. Okay. I, so I'm, I'm hoping that I, I get involved in another project that lands me back at the Oscars again. I hope so. And what other stuff do you have planned ahead? Oh, my goodness. Well, it's been a big year for television for me. Like I said, we, uh, I think with Falling Skies and The Strain and now Arrow and The Flash, it's like TV, 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 TV. But my next feature film coming out 
is uh, Crimson Peak, another Guillermo del Toro film. It's a haunted house story. It's going to be beautiful. The haunted house is very much a big character in the story. And a great cast. You've got Tom Hiddleston and Charlie Hunnam, Jessica Chastain, and Mia Wasikowska. I play a couple of ghosts. I play two, two different ghost characters in this haunted house story. And my good friend, my, my now good friend, uh, Javier Botet, 6'5", and even skinnier than me, he played the yeah. mama ghost in Mama. Is that provocative, too, that he's taller and skinnier? Oh, it's fascinating to me. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah very good. When tall, skinny people meet each other, it's kind of like two dogs looking at each other for the first time. It's like, oh, well, let's play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah, no, Javier and I, we got along instantly. Loved him, loved him, loved him. With no feelings of competition whatsoever. You know, mm. we, there's enough work to go around, and we all do our what we do best, and that's great. So, so Javier played three ghosts in the movie, and I played two. So... We shared a lot of responsibility for the the creepiness of Crimson Peak, and I, and I can't really tell you. If you look at the at the at the um, trailer is out there now for Crimson Peak. If you watch the trailer, you'll see me in the bathtub as a, as a I'm a bathtub ghost in the trailer, and it looks like it's a woman. Well, because it is a woman, I play I play a lady ghost. And then there's another lady ghost coming down a hallway with like arms that are going very spidery. That's Javier in the uh, trailer. And there's another ghost coming around the the the, uh, the shoulder of a young girl in the trailer with a very dark hand and spindly fingers. That would be my hand. That's my second character. So why women ghosts? I can't tell you. What role do the ghosts play in the movie and why are they there and why are they manifesting themselves? I can't tell you. <laughs> but... But it'll all be, I'll be told when the story comes out, you'll see why, like, oh, it's a really cool concept. And the art direction and the costuming, and it's in the Victorian era. It's going to be just another Guillermo del Toro masterpiece for sure. Oh, that's nice comes to out hear. in October of this year, of 2015. Oh, okay. Yeah. Some of the people that I interview that work in Hollywood, they sort of tend to have some kind of side projects that are either musicians or mm. in charity or something, because... Mm the job as an actor really doesn't sort of fill all the agenda or all of it. I mean, right. so do you have some kind of outlet beside yeah. acting? What does Doug do on the side? The last few years, since 2000, uh, since well, the last almost nine years, since 06, I have been so busy that I, uh, I, 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 free time is something, a concept I can't even grasp, Okay, which is a blessing. It's also very stressful, but it's a, but it's a huge blessing. So, but I started two scholarship funds, two endowed scholarship funds, one at my university that I graduated from. It's the Doug Jones Scholarship Fund at Ball State University for the theater and dance department there. And there were some very specific criteria that, that we came up with for who, who's awarded that they have to show artistic promise and on all that, but they also, I wanted it to be for a more average student. They don't have to be the straight A, the, the best grades coming in because I wasn't. And creative kids often aren't the best academic student. I graduated high school with a very bad, very, very bad grades and I barely made it into the university. They, they took me on probation. So my first year of college, I was on probation, academic probation. I had to prove that I could make good grades in college or they were going to kick me out. So that's how I entered my university experience. So I wanted to make sure that another average student would have the same artistic opportunities that I did. That's what my scholarship is set up for at Ball State. I have another scholarship fund set up at, at Asbury University in um, Wilmore, Kentucky. 
And the reason I picked Asbury as another place to, for an endowed scholarship fund is that's where my mother's dad attended and was president or vice president of. He helped, he helped accredit them as a four-year university back in, oh gosh, before 1920. So I have a legacy, a family legacy at Asbury University. So I wanted to go back and, and give back there. Also in the theater department or the media department, it could be filmmakers or actors or people who want to be directors, writers. All of those, those categories fall under the same college at that university with the same criteria. You know, I mean, if we're talking about your future in a wider scope would you say that you would like to do more less makeup <laughs> yeah well I, i have been doing uh, yeah. i've been my, my career has 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 fanned out a little bit mm. to where i'm i'm playing more characters with my own human face mm. for instance there was a very popular show here just for two years it's off the air now abc our network here um had a sitcom called The Neighbors. In season one, I was a recurring guest. I did six episodes as a goofy neighbor. It was my dream job. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got to play a tall, skinny, goofy white guy. Here I am, no makeup. I put on my, my khaki pants and my polo shirt, and I was ready to go. Yeah. Oh, it was great. And you got to be the neighbor. And I got to be the goofy neighbor that I always yeah. wanted to be, yeah. yeah. And also, this character I'm playing, Death Bolt, on Arrow and The Flash is also my face and my hair and my so I do wear a, a long coat and I'm ready to go. So so I've been getting more of those opportunities and it's it's kind of novel. It's kind of uh you know interesting for these a lot of young directors a spot a lot of indie films to come looking for me to play we want you to be in a movie without prosthetic makeup on your face. What do you think, Doug? I'm like, yes, I'm for it. Let's do it. Mm. If I like the story, if I connect with the character, it becomes more interesting to me if I can do it with my own face now. So what does the future hold for me? Yeah, I think as I, as I, when I become an old crotchety man, I would love to, but looking at careers of Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney, they were able to age doing both. And I, I want to do the same thing. If the role... If a creature, if a, a prosthetic makeup job still sings to me and it's a story I want to help tell and a character I want to play, I'll absolutely want to do that until the day I die, of mm -hmm. course. But if I have the opportunity to do a role with my own face so I can see and hear and get my own snacks off the snack table, <laughs> I love that too. Trust mm -hmm. me, I love that. So another thing I would love to do, I have an, uh, an idea for a, a, a novel I would like to write, a book I would love to write. It's kind of It's semi-autobiographical, so it's about me, but but it's a character that I've created that that's sort of he's a creature monster actor from Hollywood, and he goes on this journey, but it's it's very self-telling. This okay. this character, I described this this idea to brilliant decorated writer Neil Gaiman. He's now a friend of mine, and he said, "Oh, I like it. I think you have to write this." And he told me that seven years ago. So, so I need to get on this. I get, I finished chapter one finally, so I'm very happy about that. Okay. So if I do have free time, it's with my laptop trying to come up with with chapter two of this book that I want to write. That's great to hear. Yeah. Would you like to recommend something? Anything? Well, do you know your last guest uh, was Alan Richson? Right? Yeah. I listened to your podcast of his, and it was a great interview. I have been a big fan of his for years. His music, mostly. I I have his album. Discovered him on MySpace back in 2006. And um, he'd had one song that I heard on MySpace. I don't know how I... I uh, you know, in the social medias when they were just starting, I was learning how you... I don't know how I clicked on things. You, you go down the the rabbit holes in the internet and you end up on something that you don't know how you got there. I ended up on Alan Richson's MySpace page without knowing that he had been on Smallville. I didn't know anything about his acting career. I didn't even know he'd been on American Idol. All I knew was 
someone was recommending this song, click on that, and you could play it in its entirety on his MySpace page. I clicked, I listened, I loved it, and then I didn't know how to get a hold of his, his album. Are there more songs? How do I get that? Well, there was this little thing called the iTunes. So my brother-in-law, he knew, he knew how to work the iTunes. He downloaded it, made a disc for me that I could play in my CD player. Okay, good. And now I have Alan Richardson. I was listening to him in the car on the way here, to okay. be honest with you. All yes. Right. So I, I, I recommend Alan Rich. And I, I don't know that he ever did another album after that. I don't know if he did or not. No, I think he did that funny tune. But Yes, uh, yes, right, a more recent one. But, uh, but what was the song of the first song? that Take Me Away. The, the title of the song was Take Me Away. I think what, what, I, what resonated with me, he, I think he wrote a lot of his songs while, while, while he was in hotel rooms on acting jobs. Yeah. So this song had a very much a feeling of if you're stressed out and, you're, and, and everybody wants something from you, just a song with the title of Take Me Away is like, oh, it just sounds like I, I was flying in the sky when I would listen to this song. It was very, very relaxing and calming to me. Who do you think I should interview on my podcast? Who on your podcast? Who should you interview? You know, there's a lot of huge names that we would all love to interview, I'm sure, right? I think a fun, interesting person to interview might even be somebody from, you know, the TV show Face Off is very popular now. The creature effects makeup world field is growing in popularity because of we see the process now every week on that TV show Face Off, which I've been a guest judge on a couple times. Uh, there's again, there's a couple of famous makeup artists who are the regular judges on that show. V. Neal being one of them, Glenn Hedrick another. I think someone from that that world would be very interesting to interview on how they conceive. How do they do concept art and make that concept art become an actual creature that they can film? That might be an interesting interview. So maybe maybe V. Neal. There you go. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, that was my interview with the super sympathetic Doug Jones. And I recommend you follow his adventures on Twitter. His username is actor Doug Jones in one word. And if you're wondering what this podcast is called on said social network, it's Varvet Pod. Today's sponsor is Uniforms for the Dedicated. Go check out their stuff either in stores all over Europe and Asia or online at uniformsforthededicated.com. Thanks also engineer slash editor Lovisa Olsson. Thanks producer Christina Jörling-Biro. And thank you listener for being a listener and listening. I'm Christopher Triumph. Until next time, bye bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 